John chapter 20, page 1075. Well, it was a a year and six months ago, almost to the day that we started studying the Gospel of John. It was November 6, 2011, if my records are accurate. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's been a little while. Uh, at that time in our church's life, November 6, 2011, we had just moved into this new facility. And so there was, there was kind of a sense of a new day, a new beginning, a new season of our church's life together. And, and so we thought, well, since we're starting afresh, let's go back to the basics. Let's start at the foundation of our faith and let us once again revisit the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at the life, we've been looking at the life of Jesus for the last year and a half through the great uh, magisterial gospel of John. So my goal today is to somehow summarize this gospel for you. For the last uh, year and a half, we've been kind of crawling through John, kind of story by story, section by section. And last Sunday, we finished that crawl through John. But now I'd like to kind of take us up to about the 30,000-foot level and and look down over the whole book and say, okay, what was it all about? What, What are we supposed to learn from this? What's the main message of the Gospel of John? I mean, have you ever read a book or seen a movie where you get done with it and you're like, I'm not sure what the point of that was? You know, one of the, uh, uh, the classic movies that kind of left me wondering what the point was was 2001, A Space Odyssey. I don't know if you've ever seen that book. Uh, filmologists tell us it was one of the most groundbreaking, important works in all of film history, that it's one of the most influential films of all time. And, uh, but, but the other thing we learn is that nobody really knows what it meant. Uh, and Stanley Kubrick, uh, who, who directed that film, uh, you know, intentionally didn't make clear what he meant by that film. So you watch it and you have the big you know, black uh, obelisks, the monoliths that they find on the different planets. And, and you know, at the end, there's the baby fetus floating in space looking down at the earth. And you know, you're like, what does that mean? And, and there's really not an answer, which is kind of frustrating. I'm so glad John didn't pull a Stanley Kubrick on us. He didn't take us through this amazing, strange, at times baffling journey through the life and ministry of Jesus and just kind of leave us wondering and kind of interpreting for ourselves what it meant for us. But he actually told us what he meant to tell us. He gives us the main point. And it comes near the end of the book. Maybe a modern author might do this in the introduction, but John does this at the end. Look at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. There's a lot more I could have wrote about. But these are written, in other words, the things I wrote here, the ones I recorded, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Thank you, John, for telling us the point. It's so nice. And so we see here in verse 31, that there are two things that John wants to tell us about his gospel. He wants to tell us the main point of the gospel 
And then he wants to tell us what we're supposed to do with that main point. John wants to give us the central idea of the gospel, and then he wants to tell us the central application of that main idea. He wants to tell us the content of his gospel, and then he wants to give us the consequence. So what? What are we supposed to do with it? And they're both here in this verse. And that's what I want to do this morning. I I simply want to try to sum up John's gospel with you by looking at the main point of the gospel and then the main application of the main point of the gospel. So what is this gospel about? What what is the big takeaway you're supposed to get as, as having studied this? And it's right there in verse 31 that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You're supposed to learn who Jesus is. In fact, all the Gospels teach you that. You read any of the four Gospels, the main point is who is Jesus. And John says this is who Jesus is, the Son of God. Right? There's a lot of wonderful truths in John's Gospel. As we've studied John's Gospel, we've learned about the Holy Spirit. We've learned about the great sovereignty of God. This is a very strong book teaching God's sovereignty. We've learned about the church and the world and our relationship to the world. And we've learned all these things. But all those truths, they're like, they're like moons and asteroids and satellites. And they're all circling and orbiting around this one central truth, which is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so if you come away from John's gospel not really getting that Jesus is the Son of God, then you need to kind of read it again because that's the primary thing it meant to teach us. So let's think about that. What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What does that phrase, Son of God, mean? Because really it's, it's a little bit more nuanced the more you think about it. And I would even argue that, that John uses the phrase Son of God in at least three senses. And to really understand the main message of this book, we need to understand the kind of three ways in which he's using that phrase, Son of God. And so, so let me just go through them with you. Here's the first sense. Jesus is the Son of God in a very Jewish sense. In a very Jewish sense. I mean, it's right there in the passage. He says, I, I want you to believe that Jesus is the, what? Christ, the Son of God. Christ is a very Jewish title. The Hebrew version of Christ is Messiah, and and it means the anointed one. And what it's referring to is the Jewish hope and expectation that God was going to raise up a descendant of King David who would be the Messiah, he would be the Christ, and and that this king would bring the kingdom of God. And so the the Jewish people in Jesus' day had this kind of bubbling anticipation that the Messiah was going to come. That all of God's promises in the Hebrew Scriptures, all of the the promises in the law and the prophets were all about to happen. And there there was this kind of anticipation. You know, you look at Jewish history around the time of Jesus, there were a lot of uh, fake messiahs who popped up. And people followed him because they were leaning into this. They were ready for the Messiah to come. Some guy would say, I'm the Messiah. And people would go, yay, he's the Messiah. And then he got killed by the Romans. He wasn't the Messiah. And this happened over and over. So, but, but the point is, they were ready for the Son of God, the Messiah. And in fact, in the Old Testament, Son of God is a title that was applied to the King of Israel, especially if you look at Psalm chapter 2. So the King of Israel, the Messiah, the anointed King, was the Son of God. And Jesus is that Messiah. And so John records these 
miracles and teachings of Jesus so that we would look at Jesus' life and say, he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. For instance, turn back to John chapter 1, verse verse 44. John chapter 1, verse 44. Since this is an overview sermon, you're going to do a wicked lot of page turning today. So just limber up your fingers and get ready to be all over John. All right, John chapter 1, verse 44. This is the beginning of the gospel where John's calling the disciples. And he calls this one disciple named Nathaniel. Verse 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. You know, we found the Messiah. Who is it? Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come out of there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. So Jesus knew something about Nathanael that nobody could possibly have known. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. You're the King of Israel. So so Nathanael, based on that miracle of supernatural insight and knowledge, suddenly said, you must be the Messiah. He comes to the knowledge rather quickly. Or look at John chapter 4. Turn to John chapter 4. Here we have Jesus not among the Jews, but among the Samaritans, who also were waiting for the Messiah, though they had a slightly different theological view of things than the Jewish people did, and that was caused no end of disagreements between them. But Jesus talks to this Samaritan woman at, at the very end, at verse 28, after he's had his whole conversation with her, and he's also told her things that no one else could have known or that Jesus couldn't have known. Verse 28, it says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Is this the Messiah? Is this the Son of God? Or look at John chapter 7, verse 25. Here's now Jesus at one of the the Jewish feasts in Jerusalem, and he's preaching, and they're not arresting him, and the people kind of wonder what's going on. Why haven't they arrested Jesus? Verse 25, at this point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ, the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me. You know where I'm from. I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. But you do not know him. But I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still, get this, verse 31, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, when the Son of God comes, that's what that phrase means, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? 
So Jesus was always getting mixed reviews. There's always some people who wanted to kill him. There's always some people who are like, eh, I don't know. And then there are some people who are saying, he's the one. He's the Messiah. The miracles prove it, right? And I could go on. I, I, I'll just stop there, but we could do lots more examples of this where in the Gospel of John, there's this emphasis on Jesus as the King of Israel, the Son of God, whom they were awaiting. So if you're here this morning and you come from a Jewish background or you have family members or friends or close co-workers who come from a Jewish background, John is a fellow Jew and he's writing to you to tell you that the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for has come. That the one whom all of the Old Testament was pointing toward, everything in the Hebrew Scriptures was anticipating that the Christ, the Son of God, has come, and His name is Jesus. Jesus is that one that, that has been anticipated since the time of Abraham and Moses. And as all of the Old Testament Scriptures are directed toward Him. But that's not all that Jesus is by the Son of God. So now go back to John chapter 20. When it says there that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that's not only the Son of God in a Jewish sense. There's also two other senses. He's also the Son of God in a very divine sense. In the sense that He, well, that He is God. So Son of God has a, can have an earthly reference to the, the, the Messiah, the descendant of David, but it also has a very heavenly reference. It's a very interesting, complex word. He's also the Son of God in the sense that He is divine. He's God Himself. You know, uh, sons, sons look like their fathers. You, you, see, you look at a son sometimes and you can see the dad. Right, uh, you know what, my, uh, my little eight-year-old, my, my youngest of my four kids, he's, uh, he looks so much like me. In fact, we'll sometimes get pictures of me when I was a little boy his age, and we'll show the kids, and we'll say, who's that? And everyone will say, that's Jack. And we'll go, no, that's Daddy. And they're like, no way! That's, oh, it looks just like you, you know. And, and, and that, that's kind of the idea here. That, that's another dimension of sonship that, Jesus is the perfect expression and manifestation of God. That, that He is God made visible. That, that He is God that we can see. Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen who? The Father. You've seen Me, you've seen the Father. You've seen Me, you've seen God. You're looking at God. Whew. But that's what it also means that He's the Son of God. This is going all throughout John. All throughout John. Let's go back to the very beginning, very get-go of John. John chapter 1, verse 1. Go to the very first verse. We hear echoes of Genesis 1-1 here. John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the Word is with God, but the Word is also God. And, and that Word we know became flesh, and that was Jesus Christ. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, what a perfect image to describe Jesus. 
as the Word. You know, what's Word? Words, words are the revelation of a person. So when I'm speaking, you're hearing what's inside my head, inside my heart. You know, you, know, you don't really know me until I start talking. You know, how, how can you really get to know someone until you talk? And as the words come out, the, the words are the, the, the manifestation of that secret inner person. It, you find out who they are. And so Jesus is in a sense, the, the expression of God so that we can understand who God is. He's God revealed to us. He's God incarnate for us, a very high view of God. And you find this in all the Gospels, but John is just so blatant with it. Um, look at John chapter 2. Do you remember this story? When Jesus was cleansing the temple, he went into the temple in Jerusalem during one of the, the feasts of the Passover, and he didn't like all the people selling and exchanging money in the courts, and so he, he just kind of went bananas and made a whip and knocked over the tables and cleaned the whole place out, and as you can imagine, that raised some questions. And so verse 18, the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Again, show us a miracle. Prove who you are by miracles, which is what John is recording for us. And what did Jesus say? Verse 19, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples uh, uh, recalled what he said, and then they believed the Scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. Ah, his body. So, so think about this. He's standing in the temple. He says, destroy this temple. You know, in, in other words, he is the temple now. So the temple in the Old Testament has now been eclipsed. The temple in the Old Testament was the shadow. The temple is no longer the temple. Jesus is the temple. What's the temple? It's the earthly place where God is present. And so Jesus is saying that building has now found its fulfillment in me. I am the temple because God is right here in this earthly thing that you're looking at. You kill this, you destroy it, and in three days I'll build this temple again. Me, he's the temple because he's God among us. Kind of subtle, but it even gets more blatant. Go to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus is the Son of God, not only in a Jewish sense, but also in a divine sense. We see it in John chapter 5, verse 16. So John chapter 5, Jesus is healing people on the Sabbath. The religious leaders did not appreciate Him healing on the Sabbath. The people who got healed appreciated being healed on the Sabbath. But the people who didn't get healed didn't like it. So verse 16 because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, My father's always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So sonship language was understood by Jesus and by his audience as a divine claim, the way he was constructing it. But it's even more blatant than that. Look at John chapter 8. 
Jesus almost got himself killed when he said this. So John chapter 8, it's a big old argument. If you like good old arguments, you should read John chapter 8. He's arguing with the, the people about whether or not the fact that they're Abraham's descendants is enough to save them. And he's saying, no, it's not enough to be Abraham's descendants. You've got to believe in me. So they're going back and forth. And, and so Jesus kind of pulls this trump card in verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. And they're freaking out about that. Verse 57 you're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? What? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. And whew, they knew what that meant because they picked up stones to stone him. Instantly it was kill him, blasphemy. Because they knew when he says, I am, that that is Old Testament God talk. You know, in Isaiah chapter 43, Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah chapter 48, go back there, you get all these wonderful I am sayings of God. So when Jesus says, not even like, I am the shepherd, I am this, I am that, he he drops all the the predicates and he just says, I am. That's God talk. And they're like, whoop, that's enough for me, stone. Give me a stone. We've got to kill this guy because he's blasphemed in their mind because it's God talk. Think about all the images that Jesus uses to describe himself. The shepherd. You know, God is the, is the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He calls himself the light. God is the light. He calls himself the life. The life is in God. He uses all kinds of images to describe God. He says several times in John, I and the Father are one. It's very bold. It's very blatant. And that's why they wanted to kill him. You know, Jesus wasn't killed because he was a rabbi with slightly different views than the other rabbis. There's all kinds of rabbinic debate going on. The rabbis were always debating each other. And, and Jesus wasn't, they didn't hate him because he was saying, well, you know, I kind of have a slightly different take on the book of Deuteronomy than you do. And then they were kind of arguing back and forth. That's not why they wanted to kill him. It's because he said, I'm God. I am Yahweh God of the Old Testament in the flesh. I am. And they're like, that is blasphemy. Unless, of course, it's true, and it's not blasphemy, then it's just awesome. So it's either really true and mind-blowing, or it's blasphemy. It's one of the two. The difference is, of course, in this case, the thing that made it so tricky is, again, he was doing miracles. I mean, any madman can say he's Yahweh, but not any madman does miracles. So you have this really tense situation of a man doing miraculous things that nobody could explain and his claims to be one with the Father. And it was just blowing people's minds and it was forcing them to a decision point on what to do with him. So when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we not only mean that he was the Son of God in a Jewish sense, he was also the Son of God in a very divine sense. He was the Creator God. Not in an mm, Eastern New Agey sense. 
You guys have heard people say this, like, you know, the, the, the spark of God is in all of us. The divine, you know, voice, the, the divine voice of the universe is within all of us. And maybe Jesus was just kind of a guru who tapped into the divine voice within, and he really learned how to listen to it. And you could too, you know, and, and, and that's one way that people think of Jesus as divine, sort of like we're all part of God. And just to be super clear, that's not at all what Jesus was saying. It, that's a completely different worldview than Jesus would have even uh, been familiar with as a Jewish person. He's God, the creator God. Nor is he God in a kind of polytheistic sense. The Greeks and Romans believed in lots of gods. You know, you read Greek and Roman mythology, it's kind of like the divine version of Jersey Shore. You know, it's, it's sleazy and everyone's sleeping with each other and backstabbing each other and it's just... It's all this grossness in the Greek and Roman mythology, and they're having god babies, and they're having demigods because they're mating with humans, and, and there's backstabbing and treachery, and it's just gross. And Jesus is not a son of God in that kind of polytheistic Greco-Roman sense. He's a son of God in a completely unique sense, that he is God among us. So he's the Son of God in a Jewish sense. He is the Messiah. He's Son of God in a divine sense. And can I just list one more, and then we'll talk about the so what for all of this. But he's also the Son of God, number three, in an obedient sense. You know, the Son obeys the Father. Or sons should obey fathers. It doesn't always work out like that. But, you know, this is how it's supposed to work in an ideal world. The dad says, son, I want you to do this. And the son says, yes, father, I'll do that. And the son does it. And then the, son, the dad says, I'm so proud of you, son. Thank you for doing what I said. And the son says, I love you, dad. I love doing what you say. I know that sounds just like your households, uh, I'm sure. <laughs> but we, like, we still get it because we know that's ideally how it should work, you know, Son, I love you, and I'm telling you to do this. Yes, Father, you're my dad. I love you, and I'm going to do it. Good boy. Thank you, Dad. You know, there's that love. That is, in fact, the relationship we see between Jesus and the Father throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus doing the will of the Father, and the Father being so pleased that He wants to glorify His Son, and the Son trusting and loving the Father so much that He does everything the Father says. That's a theme throughout all of John. Jesus doing the will of the Father. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter, let's go back to the woman at the well in Samaria. Verse 31. The disciples come back from town. They got some food. There was a chipotle there or something. They picked up some fast food. Matzah bell. I don't know where they went. Verse 31. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone else have brought him food? So Jesus has to explain, my food, he says, is what? To do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you want to know what fuels me? Do you want to know what energizes me? Do you want to know why I get up every day, disciples? My food is to obey dad. And he's given me a work. He's given me a job. I'm here on mission for something. And what was the mission that Jesus was given? It was to die on the cross for us. 
So that Jesus lives his entire life with a profound awareness of destiny. That, that his whole life, he's looking forward to this moment where he's come to die for our sins. You know, he, uh, do you guys remember studying Gospel of John, just kind of recalling how often this word hour comes up in John? My hour has not yet come. His mother is at him with a wedding party, and she's like, Jesus, they're out of wine. Do something about it. And he says, woman, this isn't my, my problem. And what does he say to her? My hour. My hour has not yet come. So Jesus lives with a constant consciousness of a mission, an hour for which he was born and was coming into the world. You know, Jesus is not like Superman, the man of steel. You know, he crash lands here on earth because he has to leave his dying planet. And he gets here, and he's got superpowers, but he doesn't really know why he's here. Except, well, maybe I'll try to do something with my superpowers. And, he, you know, you get this story of him trying to figure out what, what his purpose is and mission. You know, Jesus isn't like E.T. Like he's from another planet, and he just got stranded here, and he's trying to figure out how being an alien in this weird place works. He, from the beginning, he knew he was coming for a mission. This isn't some chaotic, random thing. He's here on purpose. It's for his hour. And what was that mission? Well, look at John chapter 1, verse 29. John lays out the mission of Jesus from the very first chapter. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look! The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the mission. That He would die as the sacrificial Lamb who would take upon Himself our sin and the judgment for our sin that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and saved. Or look at John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Here's another for instance. You guys know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a great memory verse. If you've never memorized any Bible verses, and if you've ever done that, start with John 3.16. And then next time you're watching football with the dudes and some guy holds up a sign, says John 3.16, just be like, oh yeah, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. You know, and everyone will put down their wings and be like, what? You know, and it'll be cool. You can like, it's like a party trick. You can quote John 3.16. But what about John 14 and 15? This is what comes before it. This is, this is how God is going to save us. This is what Jesus came to do. Just as Moses, verse 14, was lifted up, lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Well, that's weird. What is this Moses lifting up snakes in the desert? What is this all about? Well, just real quick, you know, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were traveling to the land of uh, Canaan, the promised land, they really they were rebelling against God and they were constantly sinning against God. So God sent snakes among them as a judgment. I can't think of a more terrifying judgment than snakes. I hate snakes. They're evil. That's biblical. Um, snakes. Uh, and you know, these, so like suddenly God's like, all right, here's the judgment. It's just asps and adders everywhere. And people are being bit and people are dying of poison. And so Moses is pleading for the Israelites. He's interceding for them. And God says, okay, make a bronze snake, raise it up on a pole, and anyone who looks at the snake will be saved and will have life. That's really weird, right? 
And, and so that's what happens. Moses makes the bronze snake, and all these people are dying of snake bites, and they look, and then they're cured by looking at that, that statue. And it was like, why is that story in the Bible? That's so weird. It was a foreshadowing of Jesus, that he would be lifted up on a cross so that as we're dying in our sins, we can look to him. You know, we've been snake bitten. The serpent has bitten us. We've believed the devil's lies, and we're dying, and we look at Christ and we're, we're cured and cleansed just by faith in him alone. That's why he came. Or John, um, John chapter 10, verse 11. Just one more. Again, I, I, I could go on and on with examples of this. John chapter 10, verse 11. The choir sang these words for us a few minutes ago. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So that's why Jesus came to die for us. So he's the son of God in a very Jewish sense that he's the king. He's the son of God in a very divine sense that he's God among us. He's God made visible so that we can know God by seeing Jesus. And Jesus is the son of God in the sense that he obeyed the father and he came on a mission to give his life so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled to God, that we who are opposed to God become, could become God's sons and daughters. All right, now go back to John 20, if you wouldn't mind, turning yet another page. John 20, verse 31. That's the main point of John, that Jesus is the Son of God. So here's the next question. What are we supposed to do with that? What's the application What's the takeaway? What do you and I do in our lives today with the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And the main verb is right there in verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. Our task is to to believe it to believe that it's true, to really believe in Him that He is this Son of God. And again, this shouldn't surprise us either because this is another, another major theme in the Gospel of John is to believe in Christ. Right? Go back to John chapter 1. Verse 12 is another good verse to memorize. John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received Him... To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So by believing in Jesus, we're forgiven of our sins, and we too become the sons and daughters of God. Or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Or John chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria. Look at John chapter 4 verse 39. We've kind of been coming back to this story. Here's how it winds up. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Then they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We now have heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. They believe. 
And just one more. Oh, this one is so powerful, so powerful. Go to John chapter 6. You've got to read this one. It's so clear. I love it. All right, John chapter 6. Jesus did the miracle of the 5,000, feeding of the 5,000. The people love it. Instant picnic. Wow, we just showed up and we got food. Awesome. And then they want to make him king, so he hides. He goes across the lake. They find him. So pick up at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You're here because of free picnic. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him God the Father has put it place to seal of approval. Then they asked him, very good question, what must we do to do the works God requires? What does God want from me? It's a good question. Verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. God is asking you to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. And when I say believe, I don't mean just kind of be like, yeah, it makes sense intellectually. You know, believe is a, it's a commitment. You know, I don't mean believe like standing on the bridge over the gorge watching people do bungee jumps and being like, yeah, I, I believe those, those, you know, bungees will hold that person up. I believe that they won't break. No, no. I mean believe like strap in and jump off the bridge. That's the kind of believe that John means, that you, you commit yourself to Jesus it means that you believe that he really is the Son of God in a Jewish sense. You have to believe like a Jew. You have to say, this is the King of Israel and the Messiah. He's the King. What does that mean? It means his will, not my will. It means his way, not my way. It means his word, not my word. I'm not the King, and that's really tough because I like being the King, or at least thinking I'm the King. I like control of my life. And so it's a surrendering of your life to him and saying, I believe you're the king and therefore I'm the subject and I'm here to do your will, Father. I'm here to do your will, Jesus, the king. It means that we believe in Jesus not only as the son, uh, the son of God in a Jewish sense, we believe in Jesus as the son of God in a divine sense. If Jesus is God, what does that mean? It means we worship him, we pray to him, we, we give him everything. You know, what do you do for a deity? You give yourself to the deity. You worship the deity. When you're in a tough spot and you're struggling and you're wrestling with things in life, you cry out to your deity. You say, God, save me. God, help me. I am stuck. You know? And the first place I run is to my God. Jesus, Jesus, help me. And it means that we believe in him in an obedient sense, that we really believe He's the Savior of the world. It means I stop believing that I'm okay and I'm decent and I've done enough and yeah, I'm not perfect, but you know I'm not that bad either. And I, th I think I'm okay and then God will be pretty happy with me. I mean, most likely, you've you got to stop believing in yourself. You've got to stop believing that inside you have what it takes for God and you've got to start believing that only Jesus could forgive you and wash away your sins. You've got to, again, strap into the gospel and take the plunge 
with Christ holding you up. It's a total trust in Christ to make you right with God and to give you eternal life. You've got to believe. And John says, that's why I wrote this, so that you would believe that Jesus is all of that. And here's the promise, and I'll close with this. Look at the end of verse 31. Here's the promise. John 20, 31. But these words are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? Life. You may have life. Why does John want us to believe in Jesus so much? You know, did John have like a television preacher ministry and he's trying to start a cult or something and there was some real money to be made? You know, why did John want everyone to believe in Jesus? It's because he wants you to have life. And when you come to faith in Christ, you come to life. He is life. You know, when you, when you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. You're like, a, you're like a prisoner let out of jail. You get a get out of jail free card. It's like, go and have a new life. You're forgiven. You're not under the judgment of God anymore. You have a new life. The Holy Spirit comes into you when you believe in Jesus. And there's this, it's one of the weirdest, coolest, most awesome things of the Christian experience. But when you really believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. There's life like bubbling up. And even when you're sick and even when everything outside of you is beating you down and you feel miserable, there's this life inside that just keeps bubbling up and over and you have hope and it's amazing. It's the Holy Spirit. And you have life from being part of a new community. You know, I, I, I become a Christian, I have the Holy Spirit, and suddenly I'm part of a new family. You know, you're my new family. It's like I got a new life. And, you know, I got a whole new family as part of that new life. And ultimately, it's the hope and the belief that life is eternal life, that there is hope after the grave. Because Jesus was raised, because he is the resurrection and the life, we have hope of eternal life forever after the grave. You know, sometimes I'll say this at funerals. I I don't always say it, but uh, if the mood strikes me, and, uh, and I'm at the graveside of a, a person that I really have confidence clung to Christ. I, I feel like I'm really doing the funeral for a person who loved Jesus and I have that confidence. Sometimes I'll say something like this at a funeral. I'll be at the graveside and, and, and I'll say, you know, inside this, this box, inside this coffin, is someone we loved who is dead and they're cold and they're stiff and they're decaying. And the good news I have to tell you is that Jesus Christ was laid inside a tomb and he was cold and dead and stiff and decaying. And Jesus Christ is now physically alive. Literally alive. And so my hope is that this this person who's, who's going to decay inside this box will someday come back to life. Literally. Because Christ was raised. You know, that, that's the promise of the gospel. I'm so thankful for chemotherapy. I'm really thankful for my, for my dad for chemotherapy, for his sake. I'm so thankful for drugs and medicines that help us with pain. 
Eating organic food is really probably good. I, I don't do that, but I probably should. <laughs> I'm thankful for all those things that help our lives extend and go longer. I'm so thankful for doctors. I'm so thankful for medicine. What a blessing God's given us. But people, you're still going to die. You're still going to die. You're dying right now. The water is leaking out of the bucket. You're dying. And if you don't have Christ, you will perish, which is worse than dying. It's an eternal death. It's a conscious death. It's a hopeless forever separation from God. If you don't have Christ, you're like sand running out of the hourglass. You are dying as we speak, and you have no hope and no future if you don't have Jesus Christ. You don't have life. And what you have is like just fading away like sand. And and you're taking all of the energy you have and all of the strength you have, and you're pouring it into fitness. I like the gym too. But that's where you're, you're pouring it into sports, or you're pouring it into your car, or your job, or your career. And and you're taking your energy, and the sand is going out and out, and you're dying, and the water is draining out of your bucket. And you're going to perish. And all you have left is about stuff that, you know, it's okay, but it doesn't really matter. And you won't lay hold of Jesus. He's the life. If there was another Savior, if there was a second way or a third way, I would be happy to preach it to you. If I thought there was anyone else who could save my sorry soul, I would tell you about him. I'd love to give you four options, but all I know is there's only one guy who died for me, who was buried, and who rose for me. If there was two resurrected guys... We'd have two messages. But there's the only one and only, Jesus Christ. Not a philosopher, not a guru, not a a head of a religion, but a Savior, the Son of God. I pray that you believe in him. You know, I pray for any kids here who've been raised in the church. How many times have you heard this sermon? You've heard this so many times. Sometimes it can just sound like blah, blah, blah. But I'm telling you, like, listen. You need to lay hold of Jesus. Your parents believing in Jesus isn't going to help you. You've got to lay hold of him. And some of you have friends who've brought you to Christ, and they've been telling you about Jesus. And, you know, you've been kind of looking at it and listening to it. But I'm telling you, close does not work. You need to grab hold of Jesus yourself by faith. And enter. Because there's life. There's life in a relationship with him forever and ever. This starts now. Do you have Jesus? Do you have you laid hold of Christ? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would impart the gift of saving faith to many souls here. I pray, Lord, that 
that people who have never believed in you, really believed in you, might believe right now. I pray, Jesus, that those of us maybe who think that we are yours because we've been church-going people, Lord, I pray that, that we would come to see the truth if we're really not laying hold of Christ, that we would do that right now. Lord, I pray for, for children who've heard the gospel that they would lay hold of you. I pray for friends and neighbors who are here, Lord, because this is not about religions or denominations. This is about life and death. And Lord, I pray that before our sand runs out, that we would lay hold of eternal life, that we might not perish but have everlasting life. And so, Lord, give us faith to believe that Jesus is the Son of God in the most full, robust sense possible. Lord, we need you to do that. We need you to even breathe the life of belief into our souls. So, God, we ask you to do that. And, Lord, I just thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for saving a wretch like me and wretches like us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came on that mission. You didn't just leave us to perish like you could have. Thank you, Jesus. You are the first responder. You are the only responder. And without you, we would bleed out in our sins. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us. We pray this in your name. Amen.